Originally, this edition of Splash Pages was going to be about the broader cast of The Amazing Spider-Man and how I think we all lost sight of who they are in the internet age. And then I saw Across the Spider-Verse and knew I had to focus on one person specifically, Gwen Stacy. Throughout the movie, but especially in the opening scenes, I was struck by the constant thought that 50 years ago, Jerry Conway decided to kill Gwen off in March 1973's Amazing Spider-Man number 121. It was a decision he made pretty easily, as he detailed in his foreword to the 2007 hardcover that it collects the deaths of Gwen and her father. See, I'll be honest with you. I never much liked Gwen Stacy. In my view, Gwen is only interesting now because she's dead and because of the manner of her death. Oh sure, she was sweet and she was beautiful, but that's pretty much all you could say about her. Sweet, beautiful, boring Gwen. So much like so many other girlfriends of superheroes in those bygone days. They were all, all sweet and beautiful, and dare I say it, boring. But not Mary Jane Watson. Of all Stan's female creations, Mary Jane had a unique personality. She had attitude. She was, in an old cliché, sassy. Sassy and beautiful with a hint of secret pain in her past. So for me, it was an easy call. Who do I want to write about? Gwen Stacy, sweet, beautiful, boring. Or Mary Jane Watson, redheaded, sassy, secretly pained. Mary Jane won hands down, which meant Gwen Stacy had to die. Conway's attitude regarding Gwen as a posthumous character has been pretty well agreed on in the decades since. For years, the rule of thumb was that the only characters that couldn't come back were Ben Parker, Gwen Stacy, Bucky Barnes, and Jason Todd, the latter of whom both made their returns in the mid-aughts, while Uncle Ben was designed to die from day one. Gwen, for the most part, stayed gone after her death. Sure, she appears as a surprise in ASM 144, but this is revealed four issues later by Ned Leeds to be a clone created by the Jackal. Gwen appears posthumously in stories every few years, like the infamous Sins Past and her Earth-1610 counterpart as a fixture of the Ultimate Spider-Man comic. However, the story there remains similar. She's Peter Friend and at one time girlfriend, largely defined by that relationship in the eyes of most readers. And then, two things happened around the same time in 2014. The Amazing Spider-Man 2 hit theaters that spring to a massive box office reception, featuring a retelling of Gwen's death in its climax. Dan Slott's run on Amazing Spider-Man had launched a new volume and begun a massive event called Spider-Verse, featuring different Spider-People across different universes, some familiar to comics fans like Miles Morales, some brand new like Billy Braddock and Penny Parker, and one that shocked the world, the Gwen Stacy of Earth-65. Making her debut in Edge of Spider-Verse No. 2 by Jason Latour and Robbie Rodriguez, the character colloquially known as Spider-Gwen was an instant hit. Through a combination of her incredible design and the inversion of the classic story putting her center stage, making the former damsel in distress now and forever the hero while casting Peter in the same mold as Uncle Ben, it was clear that Spider-Gwen was the breakout character of the event, if not the whole year for Marvel, even more so than Cindy Moon, aka Silk, an even more direct counterpart to Peter Parker, introduced in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man almost six months earlier in one of the biggest focal points of the original Spider-Verse story. She spins out into her own series in 2015 that runs over 30 issues across two volumes by her creators. She starts appearing in cartoons the next year in the final season of Ultimate Spider-Man with the new codename Ghost Spider, which has carried over to other media ever since. And then in 2018, the second impact. Into the Spider-Verse hit theaters in December, with Gwen filling out the film's core trio alongside Peter and Miles to the tune of $384.3 million worldwide, 
Over four decades later, the world finally knew her, not just as Peter's dead girlfriend, not just as a cautionary tale, but as a hero, just as capable as any Spider-Man we'd ever seen. Except not really. This Gwen, the special Gwen, created for a summer event with her unique costume and vibrant color palette, whose book is lettered in a completely different style than any other book at Marvel, she gets to be a real character. The original, however, remains the same as she was in March of 1973. Forever in the green coat she wore the night she died, remembered always for being boring and then being dead. Sure, she gets to come back from time to time. She returns in the 2016 crossover The Clone Conspiracy before sacrificing herself in its penultimate issue, at least having some agency over her death this time. She also got to have one final real goodbye with Peter thanks to the progenitor reviving her in the closing pages of issue 10 of the 2022 run of Amazing Spider-Man. But those moments are still defined by her death and how it relates to Peter. Even now, that's the lasting legacy of the original Gwen in the macro sense. From a more meta point of view, the argument could be made that her legacy is in characters like Kirsten McDuffie, the unflappable attorney that finds herself as Matt Murdock's girlfriend and legal partner during Mark Wade's legendary run on Daredevil. But how many superheroes' girlfriends suffered the same fate as Gwen in the aftermath of ASM-121 before we could get a character like Kirsten, who so defiantly refuses to let it happen to her? It's often been said that after that issue, the rules changed and nobody was off limits anymore. But how true is that really? We had just seen her father die less than three years prior in Amazing Spider-Man number 90. Roy Harper, Green Arrow's beloved sidekick Speedy, was shown battling heroin addiction in 1971. That same year, the Comics Code is revised, a literal change of the established rules of comic book publishing. And that same forward to Death of the Stacys, Conway posits a thought experiment about this belief. Let's try to imagine a Marvel Universe where Gwen Stacy didn't die way back in Amazing Spider-Man number 121. What sort of place might that be? Without the death of Gwen Stacy and the controversies it engendered, would other writers and artists have explored the dark side of the heroes whose adventures they chronicled? Would Jim Starlin have killed off Captain Marvel? Would Clarice Claremont have created Dark Phoenix? Hard to say. One thing we do know. If Gwen hadn't died in the way she did, depending on how you interpret that fatal snap, the Marvel Universe would be a very different place than it is today. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is for you to decide. While I agree that it's interesting to consider how things would have changed if it hadn't been Gwen that died in ASM-121, especially considering that the original pitch for that story was for it to be Aunt May instead, I don't know if it's hard to say if stories like the death of Superman would have still come out without it. As I said, stories were still trending in that direction. Stan Lee had even gone as far as to eschew the comics code entirely for a story about drug addiction in 1971's Green Goblin Reborn. Even if we accept the premise that the impact isn't because she was Peter's girlfriend, but instead because she's a long-established character at a time when those were considered safe, the long-term effect of her death is that superheroes' wives, girlfriends, and even daughters are used as fodder to further the stories of those male characters. If Harry Osborn were the one who died tragically in issue 121, as the opening pages lead the reader to believe, would the number of male best friends to die tragically young have skyrocketed? Would Foggy Nelson or Flash Thompson have found themselves in the same position as Candy Southern or Alex DeWitt or Barbara Gordon or Karen Page or Sue Dibney? 
Would it have been such a widespread phenomenon as to have a name for it? Or would the river have found the sea in the same place with just as many women in refrigerators? Who's to say? The flip side of this, of course, is that without the original Gwen dying, we wouldn't be where we're at with the new Gwen. I'm sure that she would exist. The original Spider-Verse is full to bursting, with alternate universe versions of Spidey supporting cast, but so much of her characterization in the context of the multiverse that she resides in is dependent on her other self being long gone. In the original event, Gwen and Peter share a moment where they pledge to protect each other after failing their counterparts. In the clone conspiracy, she replaces the resurrected Gwen to infiltrate the Jackal's operation. Over time, things like this start to color some complicated feelings she has about the other her. When she arrives to help Peter during Sin's Rising, they have a heart-to-heart -heart after Pete says he wonders if his universe's Gwen would want him to save Norman Osborn from the Sin Eater. You know, it can get a little weird living half the time in a world where you're buried somewhere. Gotta find ways to make peace with it. The toughest part, really, is dealing with people who primarily remember you because of your death. They all pretend to know this angelic, idealized Gwen. The perfect girl. The tragic victim. But that's definitely not who I am, and I doubt yours was, either. She wasn't the subplot in your story or anyone else's. However she ended up here, on this bridge, that was her life, good and bad. She owned it. You've got a tough choice to make here, but it's your choice now. While this might toe the line of being a touch too meta, it stuck with me when I read it. It informs so much to me about this Gwen, how frustrating it must be for her that the only people she can relate to as far as the responsibility of being a spider person are constantly comparing her to a version of her that only exists in their memories. Why the other members of the Order she seems closest to are Miles, Jessica, and Cindy, three people who didn't have any relationship to her 616 counterpart, and why she seems to keep a certain distance from 616 Peter, who not only is deeply protective of her even when she asks him not to be, but is someone she herself has to not compare to her own dead friend. From that same slightly two-meta perspective, she's speaking to the reader. The majority of the stories about Gwen after ASM 121 always painted her in a perfect light, defining her by the tragedy, and the ones that don't are often seen as character assassination. Since past is one such flashpoint. It reveals that Gwen had a secret one-night stand with Norman Osborn when she and Peter were on the outs after her father's death, got pregnant with twins, and planned to raise the kids with Peter before being killed by the Green Goblin in retaliation for leaving him. The reaction to that is what you would assume. For years, even after clarifying on multiple occasions that his original pitch was for the twins to have been Peter's was changed as editorial thought having children made Peter feel too old to relate to, writer J. Michael Straczynski was often accused of ruining Gwen Stacy, who was a saint, an angel even, before he ruined her by making her a cheap slut who would sleep with her friend's father. Even after Nick Spencer's Ronan Amazing Spider-Man retconned that the children were clones made for Norman and Gwen's DNA by Harry and that the memories of the affair were planted thanks to hypnosis from Mysterio, the story was still recounted less for Norman being a creep and more for it besmirching Gwen's perfect memory. In universe, Mary Jane has called this out on occasion, once pointing out that none of them were perfect at the time, especially Gwen, whose grief over her father's death had led to her hating Spider-Man and driven a wedge between her and Peter that had only resolved a short time before she wound up on the bridge. Fifty years of whitewash makes people forget that even before ASM 90, Gwen was often oscillating between how she felt about Peter. Her earliest appearances see her go from interested to stone cold and back again from issue to issue, depending on if Peter has time to hang out with her or not, making the same assumptions about him as being stuck up and arrogant that their ESU classmates make. Though, in fairness, Peter does not do much to dissuade this belief by never giving a real reason for bailing constantly. She has a temper, 
and doesn't get along with Aunt May, but she's remembered as this perfect girl who could do no wrong to the point where MJ has stated on separate occasions how hard it is for her to compare to Gwen's memory in her relationship with Peter. One such time during a heart-to-heart -heart with Black Cat, where Felicia ironically confesses the same feeling in regards to MJ. This isn't to demean Gwen retroactively, but to draw a more complete picture of her and how it all only works now because of the version of her that exists in the present. The two Gwens both reflect and invert each other, in and out of universe. The original is the victim of the way that most women in comics were written in the 60s and 70s, to be eye candy or artificial conflict machines when you wanted more than a costumed villain to give you that, and her death in the subsequent years only served to flatten her most interesting traits away to make a perfect martyr of her. Pre-Spider-Verse adaptations do the same to her, often making her a composite of Mary Jane and Liz Allen. The spectacular Spider-Man most famously makes her an XP of Ultimate Universe's version of MJ, the girl next door who secretly pines after Peter, dates Harry for a while. Spider-Gwen, on the other hand, is written very deliberately and with intention from day one. She has more in common with her own ultimate counterpart as a rebel, who isn't afraid to stand up for herself, her friends, or what she believes, even if it puts her in danger. While she doesn't initially get along with Cindy Moon due to Silk's awkward personality, Gwen is still more than willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with her universe's version of Cindy to save Silk, even after the loss of her own powers. When Norman tries to creep on her again during Sin's Rising, she tells Peter she doesn't need him to defend her and gets in the goblin's face herself. This characterization stays pretty steady and consistent throughout different appearances and adaptations. Across the Spider-Verse sees her breaking rules set for her in favor of the pursuit of her goals, be they noble or self-indulgent. It's what makes her natural friends with Hobie Brown, aka Spider-Punk, and puts her at odds with both her police captain father and Miguel O'Hara. The two Gwens are has of the whole image, and we get the full scope of it with the introduction of a third the Gwen Stacy of Earth-617. Over the course of Spider-Gwen's second volume, she encounters other versions of herself from other timelines or possible futures, like the Gwen of Earth-8, who's married to her universe's Miles Morales. In the closing pages of issue 29, her interdimensional travel device acts on its own and sends her into the past of Earth-616 and places her directly at the feet of the original Gwen. Issue 30, rendered lovingly in the Marvel House style of the 1970s, begins a story titled The Life of Gwen Stacy, and sees the two Gwens work together to get Gwen 65 home. Gwen Prime, still recovering from the death of her father, is inspired by her counterpart's very existence as a superhero, and in that moment, a new version of the timeline is created, Earth-617, one where Gwen follows in her father's footsteps and becomes a detective, before forming a symbiotic bond with her Earth's venom and becoming Spider-Woman in her own right. A timeline where Gwen is the hero, inspired and defined by herself. A beautiful walking paradox who answers comics' favorite what if. That Gwen, the same Gwen, who was thrown off a bridge because the writer found her boring. Who nobody in the room fought to keep around because they agreed. Who everyone thought was better off dead because of what her death meant to a man. A character who was sainted in memoriam but never allowed the nuance of her living counterparts gets to reclaim and redefine that infamous green coat as her uniform and move on from March of 1973. And she wouldn't have done it without her other self, the one you see in cartoons and on lunchboxes, the one who wouldn't have existed in the first place if it wasn't for all the we'll never knows and who's to says. What I hope you take from this, dear listener, is that 616 Gwen never got a chance before she was deemed better off dead, and in her wake, countless other female characters wound up the same. 
the idea that it was for the best is and always has been kind of bunk. If there is any good to come from it, though, it's Spider-Gwen, a character who fulfills the potential she always had and paradoxically saves her predecessor, creating a lane for her to be who she always should have been. <laughs>